0: Like a lot of people, the year 2020 stirred up a whole lot of emotions in me. For three years, I'd had to watch a presidential successor who was diametrically opposed to everything I believed in, and witnessed a country that seemed to be getting angrier and more divided with each passing day. Then came a historic pandemic, along with a slipshod government response that rained hardship and loss on millions and forced all of us to consider what's really important in life. And in the middle of all this, there were the nationwide protests triggered by the murder of George Floyd. Yet another tragic reminder of just how powerfully racism continues to stain so many aspects of American life. And all that was before the world witnessed a violent mob, spurred on by lies and wild conspiracy theories, storm the U.S. Capitol where I'd once served. How did we get here? How could we find our way back to a more unifying American story? That topic came to dominate so many of my conversations last year, with Michelle, with my daughters, and with friends. And one of those friends just happened to be Mr. Bruce Springsteen. On the surface, Bruce and I don't have a lot in common. He's a white guy from a small town in Jersey. I'm a black guy of mixed race, born in Hawaii, with a childhood that took me around the world. He's a rock and roll icon. I'm a lawyer and politician, not as cool. And as I like to remind Bruce every chance I get, he's more than a decade older than me, although he looks damn good. But over the years, what we found is, is that we've got a shared sensibility about work, about family, and about America. In our own ways, Bruce and I have been on parallel journeys trying to understand this country that's given us both so much, trying to chronicle the stories of its people, looking for a way to connect our own individual searches for meaning and truth and community with the larger story of America. And what we discovered during these conversations was that we still share a fundamental belief in the American ideal, not as an airbrushed cheap fiction or an act of nostalgia that ignores all the ways that we've fallen short of that ideal, but as a compass for the hard work that lies before each of us as citizens to make this place and the world more equal, more just, and more free. Plus, Bruce just had some great stories. So we added a participant to our conversations, a microphone. And over the course of a few days at the converted farmhouse and property that Bruce shares with his amazing wife, Patty, along with a few horses, a whole bunch of dogs, and a thousand guitars, all just a few miles from where he grew up, we talked. We kicked things off by identifying why we both felt like outsiders as kids. And not surprisingly, the conversation then shifted to what has been the central dilemma of America since its founding, the issue of race. Later, but... uh, this is oh. use her. Well, I like how y'all just put a little whiskey there just in case. We keep that there permanently. <laughs> just, just as well. <laughs> It
1: just sits there just, it's just while like a, you're recording. Yeah, something she, happens. Yeah,
0: you <laughs> go, man. I need, I need. No, I need that. You
1: when you it need so it, you go there. get it. I don't even mind. Question: the, give you
0: an How do I like rest. Barack, man. Come on, dude. Hey, just a second. You're here. You're on your uh, <laughs> You're, <on, laughs> you're want to get it right? Put a loud mic on your Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. When was this studio built?
1: We built this about eight years ago, maybe. Love this
0: really place, man. Really great. This go. All right, let's do it. Go, go, go. So we're sitting here in... <laughs> the great state of New the Jersey. The great state of New Jersey <laughs> <laughs> with one of New Jersey's prodigal sons. That's about right. <laughs> the boss, my friend, Bruce Springsteen. And we're, we're in a studio, uh, just to paint a picture here, we've got, how many guitars you got up in here? We're looking at the house of a thousand guitars right we, now. I haven't counted them all, <laughs> but there are guitars everywhere. There is a ukulele, a banjo, so if we get moved
1: to make music, we,
0: I've been we got the sing. instruments at hand. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to see you, my friend. It's
1: good to see you also.
0: And it's a pleasure to have you here. I was trying to remember the first time we actually met, and it probably was in 2008 Yeah. during the campaign. That's right. You came to do a concert with us, was it in Michigan or Ohio? I have I have no recall, but.
1: Barack Obama, Joe Biden, roll up our sleeves and come on up for the rising.
0: But I but I remember uh, your family was with you. That's right, and I remember thinking he's very low key, even maybe a little bit shy, <laughs> and I like that in you, so I thought. I hope I get a chance to talk to him at some point. But because it was in the middle of the campaign, we were rushing around. And so, you know, we had a nice chat, but
1: right.
0: it wasn't like we had a deep conversation. Yeah. And we had a, a number of those sort of interactions. You know, you performed at the inauguration, came by the White House, you know, I run for reelection, you do some more stuff. We had a nice dinner we too. Had We had a great dinner at the White House where we sang.
1: I played the piano and you you sang.
0: Well, I (laughs) don't know about that. But we all sang some Broadway tunes uh, and some Motown. Oh, yeah. And some classics.
1: That's right.
0: And there there were libations involved. There was drinking.
1: (laughs) That was good.
0: And then I said, well, he's not as shy as I thought, but he just has to loosen up a little bit.
1: I don't know if I would say that most people in my business, but that shyness is not unusual. If you weren't quiet, you wouldn't have so desperately searched for a way to speak. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the the reason you, you have so desperately pursued your work and your language and your voice is because you haven't had one. And you understand, you realize that and you feel the pain of being somewhat voiceless,
0: you know? And, and so the performance then becomes the, the tool, it the becomes, mechanism. It
1: becomes the mechanism it, uh, from which you express the entirety of your life. Right. Your entire philosophy and code for living. And that was how it came to me. And I felt previous to that, I was pretty invisible. And there was a lot of pain in that invisibility.
0: And see, the kind of thing that you just said here is how we became friends. Because after a few drinks, and maybe in between songs, you'd say something like that, and I'd say, "Oh, that makes sense to me." Yeah. And uh, those are some deep waters and I above this- the stillness there. And so, <laughs> and I think uh, you know, we just uh, grew to to trust each other and have those kinds of conversations on an ongoing basis. And, and once I left the White House, we were able to spend yeah. even more time together and a uh, you know, l- little simpatico. Yeah,
1: I feel like I recognize those things in
0: you. Yes. And uh, so I felt really at home around you. And the other part of it was Michelle and Patty hit it off. Yeah. And Michelle was very pleased in the insights you had (laughs) about your failings as a man. Oh, yeah. And after we would leave a dinner or party or conversation, she'd say, you see how Bruce understands (laughs) his shortcomings and has come to terms with them in a way that that you have not? (laughs) Uh, You should spend more time with Bruce (laughs) because he's put in the work. And, and so there was a little also of, of uh, I got uh, the sense that I needed to get coached in you. how to be a proper husband. It's been my
1: pleasure. You know,
0: and I tried to explain, <laughs> look, he's 10 years older than me. He's, 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 he's been through some of this stuff. I'm still, I'm still uh, uh, you know, in, in, in training mode, um, despite the fact that we come from such different places and yeah. obviously had a, a different career path. The same issues that you struggle with have been issues I've struggled with. The same joys and doubts. You know, it it turns out there's a lot of overlap. Well, the political comes from the personal. Well, look, in the same way that a musician is looking for a way to channel and work through pain, demons, personal questions, you know, that was certainly true for me in terms of getting into public life.
1: But you gotta have two things going, which is very difficult. One, you've got to have the egotism to believe that-
0: The megalomania.
1: The megalomania, okay. You know, to believe that you have a voice and a point of view that is worth being heard by the whole world.
0: right
1: all right right by the whole world so you on one hand you need that type of megalomania and yet on the other hand, for it to be true for it to have the kind of impact that you've had you you you've you've got to have the tremendous empathy for other people
0: you know and it's a it's a hard trick to pull off. You you start off with ego, but then right. it, at some point you empty out and become a vessel for yeah the hopes and dreams and at your best stories at that, your best yeah uh, that you've heard from others and, and you just become a conduit for them. We're we're actually talking and I just left delivering the eulogy for my friend John Lewis. Uh, one of the giants of the civil rights movement Uh, and and somebody who was probably as responsible for making America a better, freer, uh, more generous place and making our democracy live up to its promise. And the first time I met John, he came to speak at, at uh, Harvard where I was going to law school. And um, after he spoke, I, I, I came up to him and I, I said to him, um, you are one of my heroes. You helped me find my sense of who I at least wanted to be.
1: Yeah,
0: that's true. Then, this huge, complicated, contentious, multi-racial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious place called that's America. Right. The funny
1: thing is to come at it from that vantage point is to come at it from the vantage point of the outsider.
0: That's exactly right. You know? this, this is gonna be interesting because I'm gonna have that's... to figure out why you thought you were an outsider. I know why I was an outsider. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that I can explain. I, but a, a, a nice Jersey boy doesn't have to be an outsider. <laughs> you know what I mean? He, he can be I, an insider.
1: I don't think it's something that you choose. I think it's something that is innate within you. I had a very, very strange upbringing. You know, I grew up in a small town very provincial.
0: So let's just get on the record here.
1: The great town of Freehold, New Jersey.
0: Freehold, New Jersey. That's Population
1: 10,000. Right. 10,000. 10, 1600 of whom work at the Caragusian rug mill, including my dad. My mom was the main breadwinner. My father worked when he could but was he was pretty mentally ill. You know, my father had a, a since he was quite young he suffered from uh, schizophrenia, which we didn't understand at the time, but it made life at home very difficult, and it made him holding on to any kind of job very difficult. Uh, so we had that in the house that was that sort of made our house different from others. I'd say,
0: you know. So my upbringing and on the surface looks completely different. Right. I'm born in Hawaii. Strange. Hawaii is a long ways from Freehold, New Jersey. Everywhere. Yeah, it's it's in the middle of the Pacific. I am the product of a mom from Kansas, a teenager when she had me, and a college student who had met my father who was an African student at the University of Hawaii. You know, my grandparents are basically uh, you know, Scots Irish. And the Irish were outsiders for a long time. Yeah.
1: My grandparents were old school Irish people. Right. And they were very, very provincial. Quite backward, quite country people. And we all lived in one house. My parents, my grandparents, and myself.
0: Grandparents on your dad's side or mom's side? My
1: grandparents side? on my dad's side. I was brought up by the irish side of my family and they were just as eccentric as as you were, as 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 american irish could be you know and uh started me off when i was a very young child on simply being different from
0: everybody else it, it, i had an emotional displacement yeah You know, i i tell a story about how my grandfather used to take me to the beach and that's where He'd go down there and he'd play checkers and he'd drink beers, Primo beer. I, I, I still have yeah. m- uh, memories of the, that little bottle of Primo beer that had uh, King Kamehameha's picture on the front of it. <laughs> and uh, the tourists would come up and they'd see me and they'd, you know, this is when I'm three, four, five years yeah. old. And they'd say, uh, is, "Is he a Hawaiian?" my grandfather would say, yeah, he's he's the grandson of King Kamehameha. (laughs) And they'd be taking pictures. And, and, you know, it's a nice story in the sense of my grandfather enjoyed pulling the wool over their eyes. But it's also a story of the fact that I wasn't easily identifiable. I felt like an outsider. there was visible proof (laughs) that I wasn't like everybody else. And And this is the city you're in, what's Honolulu, Honolulu, Hawaii, which is this little jewel in the middle of the ocean that is made up of all these immigrants who come from all these different places. You've got Japanese and Chinese, Portuguese who've come over, you know, as seamen. And you've got the native Hawaiians who, like many indigenous peoples find themselves decimated by disease and and so you've got that base culture that's beautiful and powerful and and I'm looking around as a kid and none of them really look like me So you're growing up in freehold.
1: My grandparents, they allowed me freedoms as a child that really children shouldn't have because my grandmother had lost her daughter in a traffic accident at five years old. Mm. I was the next child that came along. I was given complete license
0: to do whatever (laughs) I wanted to do. So what were you doing, man? I mean, you were just tearing well, up, yeah, tearing up freehold, exactly, just running rampant. At five years old, up and down the streets. You know,
1: I was terrorizing. I the was population. literally, I was doing things. I was given so much license. I was getting up later than all the other kids. I was going to bed later than all the other kids. I didn't fit in school when I went. Immediately when I went to school, because
0: you didn't like all these rules, also, and
1: I, I did not like the rules. If you, don't have a working parent and school presents to you a a set of rules, you're not prepared for them. You know, (laughs) I said, okay, what do I wanna do? I want to find my way in. You know, I need to find my way into my town. I gotta find out who my people are. And it wasn't until I discovered music and and, uh, found a way to process identity and to process my own identity and to find a way to speak and to have some impact and how to be heard, you know, that I began to feel at home where I lived. The ragamuffin is returning home like a hungry runaway. He walks through town all alone. He must be from the fort, he hears high school girls say. This countryside's burning with wolfmen fairies Dressed in drag for homicide
0: When I heard your music, I caught that sense of emotional displacement. And it was a reminder that, in a lot of ways in America, we all have started off in some fashion as outsiders. I guess I, my question is, what's the makeup of Freehold? The sure was... A lot of Irish, Italian,
1: and previous to the uh, Southern African-Americans who were bust up every summer to work in the fields outside of town.
0: What kind of fields were there?
1: Potato. So I grew up in a bit of an integrated neighborhood. I had black friends when I was really young, but there were a lot of rules.
0: Whose house you go to?
1: That's right. And whose you can't.
0: Whose you can't.
1: Who you can't have in your house. Right. And whose house you shouldn't be in. hmm And—
0: And that's before you even start talking about dating or—
1: That's right. You're a child on your bicycle. Right. And you're aware of, of all these unspoken rules. Mm-hmm. And uh, freehold was your typical small, provincial, redneck, racist, little American 1950s town, you know? It was a town that suffered a lot of racial strife, right around 65, 67, 69, you know, 69, right. So when you've
0: got the Newark riots and...
1: Literally, the day of the Newark riots, there was rioting in Freehold, New Jersey, a little town of 10,000 people. They brought in the state troopers and there was a state of emergency. In this How old were you at that point? I was 17 maybe, right. you know.
0: I was in high school. So so when you write up my hometown, right. you talk about redneck. Sure. And that has a particular set of connotations. You know, in, in the same way that in the African American community, we can say certain things about ourselves. Right. Uh, you know, you, you've got to feel a certain comfort and love for a community to be able to describe it in terms that. Yeah. An outsider, you might get in a fight. I got. <laughs> right. You. Of course. How, how do you think about that?
1: Well, hey, these were the people I loved, with all of their limitations all of their blessings, all of their curses, all of their dreams, all of their nightmares. These were the people that I loved. Uh, and that was like a lot of other small American towns in the 1950s, and it was where I grew up. Um, so this this particular song I wrote in 1984, and it was just a revisitation of, of my life as, as a young child, the town that I'd grown up in at the time was really having a, a tough time. You know, the factories were gone. When you went down our little main street, you know, you saw boarded up businesses and, and the town was sort of dead on arrival, you know. And so this was just something that came out, you know. Let me, let me run you a little bit of it. Is there a pick around any, anywhere? <laughs> All right. I was eight years old And running with a dime in my hand the bus stop to pick up a paper For my old man I'd sit on his lap in that big old buick Steer as he drove through town And tousled my hair Say, son, take a good look around, this is your hometown, this is your hometown, this is your hometown, this is your hometown. The event that started the race riding that we had in town at the time was a shooting at a Stop light. On a Saturday night, in the back seat, there was a gun car full of white kids with a shotgun firing into a car full of black kids. A friend of mine lost his eye. Come to my hometown. Head to my hometown. Head to my hometown. And then just the, the town sort of just, the town's just shutting down. How Main Street's whitewashed windows and vacant stores. Seems like there ain't nobody. This was, I, wrote, I guess I wrote this in the 80s and I knew in the late 70s and 80s, this is what I wanted my subject matter to be for who I was gonna be and what I was gonna write about. This is what made sense to me. I wanted to stay home. I wanted to live here. I wanted to be sort of surrounded by the people that I knew and, and tell my and and their story. You know, this is your hometown. There's a generational element to the song because where the song is set with a boy sitting on his father's lap and his father saying, this is your hometown and everything in it.
0: Good and bad. That's right.
1: You are a part of the general flow of history. And as such, what is happening and what has happened is partly your responsibility You know, you are tied in historically to the good and the bad things that have happened, not just in our little town, but in our country. And as an active player in this moment in time, you have some power to acknowledge these things and perhaps do something about them in in some small way. And I, I still love to sing it today. It's just, and everyone in the audience recognizes these things. It becomes more, it's more than an act of nostalgia. Right. People People always sing, my, your hometown. They always sing that verse with me. And I always get a sense that they know the town they're talking about isn't Freehold, it's not Matawan, it's not Marlboro, it's not Washington, it's not friggin' Seattle. It's the whole thing. It's right. all of America, you know. Right.
0: It's a good song. That's a great song. <laughs> so you had these riots in, in, in Freehold. What happens? Because in a lot of parts of the country, places like Newark, Detroit, they never really recover, right? But but how does it how does it play out in, in the immediate well, aftermath of, well, of uh,
1: where it played out more like Newark was less Freehold than Asbury Park. Asbury Park really suffered from its riots, you know? And they were a long time coming and justified. And black population of town was totally underrepresented in the the city government. And it was just, it was that moment in time. But Asbury really didn't come back uh, for a long, long time. It's obviously had a resurgence over the past 10 years, but some of those issues, not some of those issues, most of those issues still remain unresolved on the west side of town. So you would say, how much did that really change? I'm not so sure. Freehold, what did I see get better? Not very much. You know, and that was a much smaller event. You know, Freehold's main street is
0: three blocks. (laughs) You know, <laughs> so some stores get torn up, some folks get arrested, but the the guts of the the town doesn't really no, get no, impacted that much. No, and did did your family talk about it? Uh, do you remember talking about it? Did you talk about it with your friends?
1: Less than talking about it, I'm experiencing it in high school, where my black friends there's a moment where they won't speak to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I said, Hey, my I can't talk to you right now right now. I can't speak.
0: It's here. interesting that he said right now. That's right. He's sending you a signal. Right now, you just we need to no, let this lie. That's Doesn't right. mean we can't have a conversation later. That's right. Yeah.
1: But not today, you know. And there was a lot of flat out fighting between white students and black students, you know. So high school became a microcosm of what was of what happened in Freehold, Newark, Asbury, those tensions became very real in '68, '67, uh, which was when I was I was really in high school, and uh, so that was kind of where I I personally experienced it the most. You know, was a
0: uh, just the dynamic in school.
1: Yeah, it was Freehold Regional High School was a totally integrated high school and. It was filled with mostly working class kids, a few that were a a little better than that, but not so much. What happened is immediately after grammar school, if they didn't want, if people didn't want to send their children to integrated schools, well, you went to the Catholic Catholic high school, you know, and my- And that's true pretty
0: much in cities all across the country.
1: And that's, you know, my parents, Wanted me to go to, I think it was Trenton
0: at the time. I said hmm. Trenton. I'm gonna ride for an hour on the bus every day. <laughs> you know? Plus, you're not going to class anyway, so it didn't matter. That's right. Because <laughs> you're gonna be a rock and roll star. <laughs> which, which, which raises uh, an interesting question. So, right around this time, you're starting to get serious about music, and it's shortly thereafter you start putting your bands together and. This is. I'm. I'm. It's 1964.
1: Is when I picked the guitar up. And I'm playing it all through high school. Right. We started. We had a band in 1964. So you had the Rolling Stones and you had the Beatles. But very shortly, you also had Sam and Dave. Right. And you had Motown. You know. And you learned how to write from the Motown, the great Motown songwriters. You learned how to perform from Sam Moore and
0: uh, from Sam and Dave. So, if there aren't African American artists who are helping you then. Discover rock and roll. There's certainly African American influenced artists that are opening this door Absolutely, for you. Of so, course,
1: we had a band that uh, to play down what was called what what is Route Nine, which was south of Freehold. You had to know some soul music because it was called Greaser territory. The Greasers were the guys with the three quarter length leathers, sharkskin suits, ties hair slicked back, pointy black shoes, nylon see-through socks. All of it, you know, taken from the black community. Yeah.
0: Know? And that was the and, style, and, the yeah, Greasers.
1: including the music that they love.
0: Right. Through this
1: world. So when you went south on Route 9, you had to be able to play soul music and right. doo-wop music or else you wouldn't survive on a Friday and a Saturday <laughs> night. You just Everybody's wouldn't like, survive. Who
0: are, who are these folks?
1: You know, that was just the nature of of rock and roll and rhythm and blues played by our, our little band in, in, in those days, you know. And how
0: are you processing that?
1: As a young musician, you know, you were immersed in... In music and and in, in the African-American culture that that inspired the music that you loved. You know, uh, high school was very strange because the black kids in my high school were both envied and were also suffered tremendous prejudice against them at the same time. You know, I mean, the... the what were they the The young guys, the way they dressed. They everybody tried to dress. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we used to go to... The Springwood Avenue to a place called Fishes, where that was, that was where the clothes were, you know, and so it was a, it was a strange imbalance that was
0: uh, difficult to sort of uh, to sort through, you know. It makes me think, though, because Spike Lee makes a movie do the right thing. Yeah, and great picture. Great picture. One of the protagonists, who he plays, a guy named
1: Mookie. Right.
0: Uh, And he's working for this Italian guy and his sons who are trying to run a small business, a little pizza joint. (laughs) And one of the sons is a sweet kid, loves the African-American community that they're serving. And the older one is cynical and, and more blatantly racist. And at one point, Mookie, who despite not always working real hard, is insightful about the neighborhood he's living in, he starts asking the racist older brother, Can I talk to you
2: for a
0: second? Who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? Eddie
2: Murphy. Who's your favorite rock star?
0: Prince. Prince.
1: You're Prince. Bruce.
0: So so why is it that you're always using the N-word when all these folks, you're always talking about how much you love them? And I always thought that was a such a brilliant and simple way to capture something that's always been true and complicated about America, which is this notion of black folks are the other, they are demeaned, they are discriminated against, looked down upon, and yet the culture is constantly appropriating and regurgitating and processing the style that arises out of being an outsider and knowing the blues and, and and having suffered these scars and having to you know live on mother wit and make stuff up out of nothing and rock and roll is a part of that process i'm wondering whether as a teenager that's something that you're even processing or is it Sort of something that you kind of just think, you know what? This music's cool, and I like it, and it makes it moves me in some way.
1: Yeah, no, I think I think that uh, if if you were a teenager in the '60s, you were processing all this intensely.
0: The President's Advisory Commission on Civil Disorder warned that race hatred threatened to tear this country apart. Events this month: race riots, happen. violence, looting, and hate.
1: You couldn't be a a teenager in the 60s and not be aware that race was, race was the fundamental issue of the day, you know. In America, you know, we have loved black people and brown people when they're entertaining us, but when they want to live next door, we remain a tribal society, you know. It, it, it's part of our tragicness, you know? that, that continues, obviously, to this day, you know um and i don't think i don't think it's ever been more more essential a subject as it is at this very moment um I think why is it so hard to talk about race why am i why am I pausing here? <laughs> you know um, talk about race, you have to talk about your differences talk about race, you have to talk about um, to some degree the um Deconstructing the myth of the melting pot, which has never fundamentally been true. Admitting that a big part of our history has been plunderous and violent and rigged against people of color. We're ashamed. Ashamed of our collective guilt we would have to admit and to grieve for what's been done. We would have to acknowledge our own daily complicity and to acknowledge our group membership and that we are tied to the history of uh, of, of, of racism, of of, of that racism.
0: Of a great wrong.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know? Those are all hard things for people to do.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, it, it, uh, it, it, the interesting thing for me has been how in part because my upbringing was so unusual, I had to figure this stuff out, but it wasn't right in my grill on a day-to-day basis in the same way. There were no riots in Hawaii, right? There was no other side of a town where blacks had to live. So, so I'm absorbing this, and I'm experiencing my share of day-to-day ignorance and slights, right? I still remember I played tennis. I'm 11, 12 years old, and I still remember, you know, they used to put the seedings up for the tournaments that you'd play in. And I was a, not a great player, but I was good enough to be in some tournaments. And I remember running my finger down to, to see where my name was on the seating. And uh, the tennis pro, who was basically the coach of the tennis team at this high school, he says, uh, better be careful. You might, you might rub off on, on the chart and, and make, make it dirty. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, this is probably 74, 75. I still remember I, I, I turned to him. And I said, what did you say? And it was an interesting moment of being an 11 or 12-year-old talking to a grown man. Really? And watching him process and calculate what he should do. And him saying, yeah. I'm just joking, is what he said.
1: Uh, who were your friends at this time? What's the, what so, were so, your friends, so So you? the who? interesting
0: thing is, so my, my best friends end up being a bunch of misfits and outsiders themselves, kids like you who were maybe a little bit emotionally displaced. I I realized that my best friends in high school, who are to this day some of my best friends, all of them came from broken homes. Yeah. All of them economically was at the lower end of the totem pole relative to the other kids in the school. And one of the unifying things was basketball. We all became huge basketball fanatics and sports yeah. became the place where a black kid and a white kid could meet on equal terms and be part of a community that wasn't free of race but was an arena in 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 which issues of who's up who's down status you know all that it, it all came down to who could play where did your mom fit in all this though? She infused me with a basic sense of who I was and why I was blessed to have this beautiful brown skin I had and to be part of this grand tradition. Man. And some of it she romanticized. but you know, she would bring me these uh, kids. Versions of the biographies of Muhammad Ali and Arthur Ashe. And you're ten and, or eleven, yeah, and 10, you're 12, 11, 12 time, right? Yeah. So, I think instinctually she understood I need to inoculate him early from what may be coming. You know, she gave me enough of a of a foundation of confidence. I was loved, cherished, and special. And being black was something to be proud of and to be cherished and special. And in fact, the very struggles that blacks in America were going through were part of what made black folks special because they had, in some ways, been fortified by. Suffering and they had experienced cruelty, and as a consequence, could help all of us transcend that. We started the conversation talking about us both in some ways feeling like outsiders. And part of my politics, part of a lot of the speeches I've made in the past has always been to claim America as a place where you don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to come from a certain family. You don't have to have a certain religious background. You just have to have Fidelity to a creed, a belief. You know, Folks sometimes ask me what, what's one of my favorite speeches, of the speeches I've given. And, and it, it may be the speech I gave on the 50th anniversary of the march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Yeah. That's Starting a great, in Selma. That's a great speech. It was at a time when you were seeing this ramp up of criticism not just of me, but of progressives as un-American, not real Americans, don't love America. And I thought it was a good moment to capture a different idea of America. I, I thought that anniversary, me being down with John Lewis, and by the way, George W. Bush, a whole bunch of folks celebrating this moment in our history, you've got on one side outsiders, black students, and maids, and laborers, and busboys. to disperse, go home, or go to your church. This march will not continue. And on the other side, the power of the state. Here, the and there's a standoff this historic clash of two ideas of America. On one side, you've got the idea is, no, America is just for certain people who have to be and look a certain way. And on the other side, led by this 25-year-old kid in a trench coat and a knapsack, this idea, America's for everybody.
1: We march into our state capital to dramatize to our nation and to the world our determination to win first-class citizenship.
0: In fact, what makes America America is all the outsiders and the misfits and the folks who tried to make something out of, out of nothing. Nothing. So that became the theme of my speech. I started talking about. Let me tell you about America. We're Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea. We're the pioneers and the farmers and the miners and the An entrepreneur. entrepreneurs and the hucksters. hucksters. That's, our, That's spirit. our spirit. That's who we are. We're Sojourner Truth and Fannie Lou Hamer. Women who could do as much as any man and then some. And we're Susan B. Anthony who shook the system until the law reflected that truth. That is our character. We're the immigrants who stowed away on ships to reach these shores. The huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Holocaust survivors, Soviet defectors, the lost boys of Sudan. We're the slaves who built the White House and the, the economy, economy of the, of the South. We're the ranch hands and the cowboys and then a part that I know you'll like, were the storytellers, writers, poets, artists, who abhor unfairness and despise hypocrisy and give voice to the voiceless and tell truths that need to be told. We're the inventors of gospel and jazz and blues and bluegrass and country and hip hop and rock and roll and our very own sound with all the sweet sorrow and reckless joy of freedom. Right? We are Jackie Robbins, enduring scorn and spike cleats and pitches coming straight to his head and stealing home in the World Series anyway. And we are the people Langston Hughes wrote of, who build our temples for tomorrow strong as we know how. We are the people Emerson wrote of, who for truth and honor's sake, stand fast and suffer long, who are never tired so long as we can see far enough. That's what America is, not stock photos or airbrushed history, or feeble attempts to define some of us as more American than others. We respect the past, but we do not pine for the past. We do not fear the future. We grab for it. America is not some fragile thing. We are large, in the words of Whitman, containing multitudes. We are boisterous and diverse and full of energy, perpetually young in spirit. That's why someone like John Lewis at the ripe old age of 25 could lead a mighty march. We honor those who walked so we could run. We must run. So our children soar, and we will not grow weary, for we believe in the power of an awesome God, and we believe in this country's sacred promise. That's what John fought for, and that's what you sing about, and that's what those kids are out there organizing for. Yeah. All right? Amen.
2: Renegades Born in the USA is a Spotify original presented and produced by Higher Ground Audio in collaboration with Dustlight Productions. From Higher Ground Audio, Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Joe Paulson are executive producers. Carolyn Lipka and Adam Sachs are consulting producers. Janae Marable is our editorial assistant. From Dustlight Productions, Misha Youssef and Arwen Nix are executive producers. Elizabeth Nakano, Mary Knopf, and Tamika Adams are producers. Mary Knopf is also editor. Andrew Epen is our composer and mix engineer. Additional mixing from Valentino Rivera. Rainier Harris is our apprentice. Transcriptions by David Rodriguez. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, the Dustlight Development and Operations Coordinator. Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, and Courtney Holt are executive producers for Spotify. Gimlet and Lydia Polgreen are consulting producers. Music Supervision by Search Party Music. From the great state of New Jersey, special thanks to John Landau, Tom Zimney, Rob Librett, Rob DeMartin, and Barbara Carr. We also want to thank Adrian Gerard, Marilyn Laverty, Tracy Nurse, Greg Lynn, and Betsy Whitney. And a special thanks to Patty Scalfa for her encouragement and inspiration. And to Evan, Jess, and Sam Springsteen. From the District of Columbia, thanks to Christina Shockey, Mackenzie Smith, Katie Hill, Eric Schultz, Caroline Adler Morales, Marone Heli Meskel, Alex Platkin, Kristen Bartoloni, and Cody Keenan. And a special thanks to Michelle, Malia, and Sasha Obama. This is Renegades, born in the USA.